0: Welcome back to the Next Frontier podcast, specifically to the Where Stuff Comes From series. Some quick context before we get started. On this episode, we talked to Jason Kim, the CEO of Millennium Space Systems. I had the chance to visit Millennium Space Systems in Southern California right before their integration and acquisition by Boeing back in 2017. I believe it was 2017. Jason and I crossed paths through the space world at South by Southwest in Austin this past year. We had a delightful conversation about United States manufacturing and how to use technology, innovation, leadership, strategy, et cetera, to revitalize and enhance the United States' manufacturing ecosystem. The conversation was so aligned with some of the where stuff comes from threads that we've been pulling over the last 18 months. I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to share some of what I learned from Jason with y'all in this podcast episode. Okay, before we dive in, here's a quick paragraph on the work that Jason does leading Millennium Space Systems team. Jason Kim is the CEO of Millennium Space Systems, a Boeing subsidiary based in El Segundo, California. Millennium Space Systems delivers high-quality, small satellite constellations across all orbits for high-stakes critical missions. From missile warning to advanced national security space missions, Millennium rapidly delivers affordable prototype and constellation solutions. With that context in place, I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Jason Kim. Jason Kim, welcome to the Next Frontier podcast. It is a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Max.
1: Uh, You know, Really excited about the conversation we're about to have because uh, one of the reasons why I came back to this company, Millennium Space Systems, is to take us
0: into high-volume manufacturing. Wonderful. Well, this is very prescient for the where stuff comes from conversation we've been having on this podcast for quite a while. To give a little more context, the Next Frontier podcast and some of the work I'm doing around the Next Frontier theme is all about how innovation and industry are intersecting to result and enable and empower more independence, more individualism, um, more freedom and more flourishing over the long run. So with that said, as I ask all my guests when we start the show, could you give us a little context on who Jason Kim is in 2022? What are you working on at Millennium Space Systems? And then we can dive into this robust question list uh, that we're very much looking forward to dissecting with you.
1: Max. I think we met at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, and uh, that's kind of close to home for me because I grew up in Dallas, Texas. And so I lived there for probably about 17 years and uh, had parents. Uh, my dad was in the oil and gas industry, so logically, we you know, we he raised us in Texas. And uh, I got to see a lot growing up. Uh, you know, Dallas is a very metropolitan area and uh, got a lot of exposure to the telecom world that's big in, in, uh, in Dallas, as well as uh, the semiconductor world. Uh, as you know, uh, a lot of that work is right there uh, in my hometown. And uh, so uh, inevitably, you know, I ended up uh, looking to get into engineering. Uh, and uh, particularly the electrical engineering uh, and i attribute that to um, where I, where i came from um another thing that uh you know my my dad kind of instilled in me was to give back to our nation. Uh, he was our first generation immigrant and uh, brought us over to to the us and we got naturalized and um, he always uh you know, recommended that we give back because we've gotten so much from our country. And uh, that led me to going uh, to the service academies. I I applied to all three service academies. And in the end, I I chose the Air Force Academy. And, uh, you know, I wanted to be a a fighter pilot um, of some sort. And, uh, but I also wanted to be an electrical engineer. And the Air Force Academy is a great place to to do both of those things. Um, In the end, uh, you know, the the things happen for a reason. And I uh, was not able to be a pilot, but I was able to be an electrical engineer. That was my first job uh, in the Air Force. Uh, And then I got assigned to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, which you probably, Max, never heard of it or... It wouldn't be a garden spot for most people, but for me, it was a blast. Uh, I got to work at a program office that was acquiring unmanned aerial vehicles and other ISR platforms like the U-2. And so here I was as a second lieutenant getting to be a part of the real operational Air Force and seeing disruption happen right in front of my eyes. You know, UAVs were not popular back then when I was... Joining the Air Force, but I got to witness uh, UAVs turn into actual operational warfighting systems, and uh, I saw it rapidly uh, within six months timeframe. Because, as you know, around that time there was uh, a uh, a conflict, and we saw uh, those technologies uh, really do a lot of great things to help keep our nation safe. Um, so that that was kind of what became my get guide star, is, is how do we give back to the nation? How do we keep our nation safe uh, through national security? And so I, I kept uh, going in the Air Force. I got assigned to LA Air Force Base, and there I was able to uh, get my uh, hands dirty on ground systems and satellite systems and how it all integrates and supports the warfighter. And uh, I also fell in love with the Los Angeles area. Um, and so um, I'm, I'm a very big advocate of the Southern California area. Uh, it's actually where space started uh, many, many years ago with uh, General Schriever. Uh, and uh, there's a huge legacy here. There's a lot of uh, talent in the area that are multi-generational. And uh, you know, Southern California area uh, is going through resurs- resurgence as well in the aerospace uh, defense industry. Uh, not only do you have these traditional A and d companies in the area, you have you know six rocket startup companies in the Southern California area and growing. Uh, there's a lot of uh, capability and talent in this area, so um, we're, we're able to uh, leverage that because uh, at Millennium Space Systems, uh, we're focused on delivering high quality, small satellite prototypes and constellations. And we have a model that is unique in the industry. And I think it's the the future trend, which is we're agile, uh, we're able to take calculated risks and be very creative and innovative, like the startup companies, but we have the backing of our parent company, the Boeing company, uh, that helps us with a lot of the things that traditional aerospace and defense companies have uh, so that we're able to deliver quickly on unprecedented timelines um, and affordably and bring the latest technologies to space, but do it in a very secure manner, do it in a very uh, interoperable manner so that our warfighters can use that system.
0: Wonderful. That's a lot to unpack. I'll first say thank you very much for your service. Um, this podcast, for some reason or another, I guess I, I love Air Force guys, but but the the podcast started, the first episode we did was with a friend of mine named Ben Arnenberg. He was also an electrical engineer in the Air Force, and I think he also worked on UAV systems. Um, we ended up having a conversation about him building a small business while he was a second lieutenant in, in the Air Force uh, and then his business from there. But Interesting way that we kicked it off. And then we had Brian Beam Malon from AFWorks. He's the the, the the gentleman who who built AFWorks uh, a couple of years ago. That's the Air Force's innovation arm. Um, now we're having you on. And then I also had a friend of mine from the Israeli Air Force who built up their innovation unit on the podcast to tell us a little bit about the work he did with innovation within their Air Force. So the Air Force, from my perspective, uh, number one, very grateful for the work that you all do and have done. Um, and then from another perspective, responsible for so much innovation um, in space, in, in electronics, in avionics, in unmanned systems, in artificial intelligence, et cetera. So a lot to go into there. I'm going to maybe gear us towards the satellite conversation, towards the manufacturing conversation, and then into Millennium Space Systems, um, because I'm sure we could talk about the Air Force stuff all day long. Uh, And we've touched on it a little bit in a few of the other conversations on the podcast. Before we get into that, when you you view what's happening now in the aerospace industry and the work you're doing, do you view your work as more building satellite company, space company, or more so manufacturing company and industrial company and industrial-based company? Does that make sense?
1: It does make sense. And I'll answer with, uh, we are, uh, at the end of the day, a small satellite prime contractor that provides mission solutions. Uh, So that's what we have at the company and that's what we're enhancing at the company. Now, to do that, you need to have the end-to-end capabilities of design, uh, develop risk reduction, um, manufacturing of products, uh, testing them, integrating them, um, and then finally integrating them with the launch vehicle and launching it and then Operating it, we do all those things. So that's what I mean by being an end-to-end mission solution prime contractor. Um, so the the manufacturing side that that's a that's a means to an end, to be that prime contractor to provide these high quality small satellites for prototyping and for operational missions.
0: Cool. Can we unpack that a little bit? So so you just described a little bit of what Millennium Space Systems does. So you have components come in. You have a, a, a mission that you need to solve for to build a satellite, and then you build the satellite and you deliver it to the to to whoever the customer is in a way that it's able to be integrated onto a rocket. Can we take a step back and could you help explain to me like, you know, in, in an LE5, explain to me like I'm five terms, how that whole stack works. So what does a satellite do fundamentally for the Department of Defense, for Boeing's customers, for Millennium Space Systems customers? Um, how does that project come to be? Etc. If you could take that from the top, like what does Millennium Space Systems do, and how does that kind of value chain really work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You no, know, I think every everybody's lives are, in one way or another, impacted by space. Uh, whether you use a uh, your GPS on your iPhone or uh, an ATM machine, or do transactions financially online, um, or even broadband communications, or watching. Uh, streaming of, of movies, all that stuff, uh, one way or another, depends on space. Um, and so uh, I think sometimes a lot of us take it for granted because it's just so prevalent. Um, but, you know, in, in a nutshell, that's what companies like Millennium Space Systems does, is is uh, provide satellite systems that helps improve lives on Earth.
0: And now bouncing around a little bit how did you come into millennium space systems what was your what was your introduction to the company and how did you how did you get on to solving the problem of creating that type of end customer value through the vehicle of millennium space systems
1: yeah i think uh i first met the founder of millennium space systems in 2002 when i was wearing a, a uniform and i was really uh you know open to new technologies and new business models and new capabilities. And uh, that's what Millennium Space Systems offered at the time. And I got to witness it grow. uh, And I joined the company when um, I I left the service. I I did some time uh, at a traditional aerospace and defense company. Learned a lot. But I I wanted to try something that was disruptive. and was able to provide capabilities that uh, maybe it wasn't 100% of what uh, you needed, but maybe 80% of what you needed, but you know 20% of the cost. So there is a high risk, high reward uh, aspect to uh, the types of things that Millennium Space Systems was doing at the time. So in 2009, uh, I made the, the leap and joined the company um, when it was 20 people and uh, now we're uh, way over 500 people now and growing. So I've seen a lot uh, over the years, uh, but that's how I uh, joined the company. I did do a, uh, a year away and I learned a lot about the industry and um, other markets. And uh, when the founder retired and uh, the opportunity came my way, uh, I jumped on it to come back. And uh, it, it wasn't really a hard decision because uh, of the talent talented people here at the company uh, that are just problem solving every day uh good at what they do and uh, you know are all about the mission. Also the customers that we support here and their missions really believe in our customers and our missions and we really want to deliver for those uh, war fighters and uh, users, and then finally, this is this is a company that gives back to to the nation, and uh, you know I think those things made it really easy to come back.
0: Leading a a defense contractor is one layer of complexity. Leading a manufacturing company is another layer of complexity. Leading what I've heard you uh, talk about as a digitally defined small satellite company is a totally different layer of complexity, and I, I hope to unpack that. Um, later in the conversation, but you have a very complex job. So how, how did your, on a more tactical level, how did your military experience, your experience outside of Millennium, what are some key key lessons and kind of takeaways that have helped build you as a leader who's driving this incredible ship in an incredible direction um, at Millennium during this stint? Well,
1: I think what the military provides uh, a lot of um You know, war fighters as well as veterans is uh, a lot of leadership uh, training and uh, coaching. So, at the end of the day, uh, myself and my leadership team uh, are leading our company through challenging uh, environments, uh, um, problem solving every day, um, you know, grooming our, our workforce, developing them. Um, doing all the things we needed to do to run this company, but also to deliver our systems on cost and schedule and at performance. So that's the main takeaway from my military experience is just um, learning to lead and uh, lead uh, people, not just in normal situations, but high pressure situations.
0: I think something I've seen in the, of smb manufacturing world as i've been doing some of this work and with some of the other conversations i've had that the the ownership piece of the question about where stuff comes from and how do we innovate starting at the top and having like not just the ta- the technical skill set but the leadership skill set to to make sure you're continuously improving to make sure that uh, problems are getting solved on a day-to-day basis at all levels it's a it's a very unique skill set um so do you have any any tactical lessons that that you use in your um, day-to-day leadership experience based on what you were were just talking about, about how you developed as that leader that you can share with with other companies?
1: Yeah, I think uh, the main um, advice I would give uh, other leaders in the industry uh, is just to listen, to listen more, to actively listen to the experts. Uh, We as leaders may not be the experts in uh, respective areas at the company, uh, but you hire very talented people that are experts at what they do, and it's great to be curious, ask them questions, listen to them, listen to their advice. Uh, They are experts, and we hire them to be empowered and make good decisions and make good recommendations. Uh, so that would be the biggest thing is just to stay curious and, and
0: listen. So that so I w- I'm very excited to get into the, the people part of the conversation. Uh, because I know that when we were last together, we, we spent quite a bit of time diving into that and how we can start developing um, that workforce. And while, we, while we're listening, we need people to listen to. So how do you develop those experts, et cetera? I'm going to table that for one second. And maybe if we're going people, product, process, we can start with the product and Get a, a more nuanced understanding and jump back to the satellite conversations so could you help us understand just visualizing like what do these satellites look like what is the, the production line to make a satellite look like when you're thinking about millennium space systems
1: yeah i could geek out on this so um, <laughs> you know at the end of the day a satellite needs power uh to do what it needs to do because once you launch it into orbit um you know 99% of the time you're not going to be able to go up there and, and uh fix it or tell it what to do
0: so i'm, I'm sorry because I just interrupt you there for one second what is the one yeah. percent of the one percent of the time where you can go in there and update it <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I could geek out on that too so yeah. there's uh a thing called on-orbit manufacturing on orbit servicing uh and that's a probably a good topic for a future podcasts yeah. and okay. there's A lot of people that are experts in that area, uh, including the Boeing company. Um, So 99% of the time, uh, you're not going to be able to go work on the satellite once it goes up there uh, like you can with the space station or um, other um, reusable platforms. Um, Our small satellites, uh, they're meant to survive about three to five years and uh, do the mission. And uh, they are about the size, on average, of a dorm room refrigerator. And, uh, you know, we uh, have, you know, a power system on there so that it gets power from the sun. Uh, We need to keep it hot and cold, depending on what the environment temperature is. So you need uh, essentially thermal blankets and heaters and such. You also need to uh, know where you're pointing. Regardless of what mission it is, you kind of know where you need to be pointing. And so there's star trackers that um, take advantage of what the uh, uh, Navy has taken advantage of for many, many, many years, uh, which is celestial tracking. Look at the stars and knowing where you're pointing based on the stars aren't going to move for a long time. Um, And then there's uh, the ability to... Task the spacecraft. So, you want to be able to have a radio on there so that you could talk to it and say, Hey, I want you to point over here and do your mission over here at this time. And then, by the way, I want you to tell me what the data is that you just collected. So, there's a two way radio that um, most small satellites have. And then, of course, you know, to do all this autonomously, you need a, a computer on board, you need a, a full fledged flight computer on board. So That is the brains of the satellite. Just like a human, you need a nervous system. So there's a harness of wires, bundles of wires um, that connect all these uh, uh, organs, if you will, together. And, um, you know, there's um, also uh, mechanisms, actuators that allow you to uh, point in free space. And what I mean by that is if you remember your um, physics classes in high school, um, there was always that demonstration of spinning a wheel while you're on a dolly. And as you move the wheel around, it kind of spins you in a different direction. Uh, we take advantage of that. And we have something called the reaction wheel that allows you to spin your spacecraft so you can point it um, you know, where you need to. So that's just... Um, a uh,
0: a o- high level overview of what our small satellites uh, entail. So size is about a dorm room refrigerator. There's say some sensor packages, some ways to actuate to move the satellite around, point it in different directions. There's some navigation packages in there. It's another sensor sensor package. There's a power system to run the whole whole operation. There's some communications to help communicate with the ground or with other satellites or whatever it might be. And then you have to deal with thermal management and that varies from satellite to satellite, depending on application and where it's going to go in space. Um, are you guys just assembling all of those different subsystems together into the satellite or do you have a hand in a role in, this in assembling the subsystems um, at Millennium? So what, what is the the operation that you're running look like just so we can, again, have some visuals in our head as we're diving into some higher level conversations.
1: Yeah, when we started as a company, um, we had to buy a lot of those parts, uh, but we did uh, deliberately build some of those parts. So I would say uh, some some of our early, earlier vehicles were about 80% buy from suppliers out of house and then about 20% build in house. Um, then you fast forward to um, subsequent vehicles were more of a 50-50 split as we became more vertically integrated. And then eventually in around the 2015, 2016 timeframe, uh, we made a deliberate decision to go uh, vertically integrated in a very smart manner. And so now about 85% of what goes into our spacecraft, we build the components that go into those spacecraft in-house that do all those functions we just talked
0: about. that, that makes our spacecraft work. Um, this is not on the questions list, so if it's not good to go to ask, please let me know. But I am I am curious if if you're able to go into it. Um, you know, typically, for for non-defense folks who I have on the podcast, I'll ask them like what the breakdown is for you know made in the USA versus versus made overseas. But I imagine with ITAR and whatnot, you guys don't have similar concerns because you're kind of forced into having made in the US stuff. Um, but I'm wondering if you have any comments there. Yeah. Thoughts. Yeah.
1: We do what makes sense at the end of the day. Uh, it's all about the mission, uh, requirements that our customers need. So we will do what makes sense. And if it means that there's a supplier, um, outside the U S that has something that the customer wants, uh, we'll explore that with the customer. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of great, uh, suppliers uh, across the globe. And uh, you know, there's unique technologies across the globe. Uh, so we'll we'll do what makes sense. Um, at the end of the day, uh, it's about meeting the customer's mission performance and their cost and
0: schedule. Roger that. And then, so the satellites are, so I mean, when you say the size of a small dorm room refrigerator, Especially when we're talking about electronics and sensor packages, people are probably used to you know, their iPhone being, being pretty big and inconvenient. So a dorm room fridge, because I know about the space industry, is relatively very small for a satellite. Uh, but for some folks who might not be as familiar in the consumer electronics space, that might appear to be pretty big. Um, can you maybe give us a little bit of a, of a, of a history? Like how did, how did the space industry formally make satellites? How big were they? And how did Millennium kind of come in and transform and innovate the satellite manufacturing process, if that makes sense?
1: It does. You know, space has been around for, um, you know, over 50 50 years. And uh, the first satellites were actually small satellites. Uh, You know, Sputnik was about the size of a dorm room refrigerator. But as the space industry uh, matured, uh, there was such a thing of hey, there's these large launch vehicles. Uh, wouldn't it make sense? Wouldn't it make sense to pack as much of a spacecraft into the launch vehicle uh, to, you know, get as much out of that launch each launch, um, you know, and get as much capability on orbit? So that's how it kind of evolved: is um, the industry migrated to building very large monolithic satellites that allowed you to do uh, communications and uh, other missions. And um, you know the launch vehicles uh, were very large. Um, but as we uh, progress in the space industry, what we're seeing is that um, you're seeing more small satellites enter the markets and you're seeing more Um, proliferated constellations of small satellites. And you ask why? Well, um, part of it is the complementary aspect of the launch vehicle market. You're seeing a lot more small launch vehicles, and that really reduces the barrier of entry to afford to go to space. And so the the launch vehicle industry migrating or including uh, smaller launch vehicles has uh, allowed for the um you know the small satellites and the proliferated constellations to also grow with it. Um and you're seeing more missions because now you have the large satellites and large launch vehicles augmented by small satellites and small const or large constellations of small satellites. So you have this hybrid architecture that's forming where large and small satellites can work together to provide even more enhanced capabilities than we've ever seen in the past.
0: And has innovations that Millennium's made, other companies might've made on the manufacturing side, enabled kind of that higher volume, um, smaller footprint satellite process to to be more effective? Because I imagine if you're building a freaking, um, I don't know, 3,000 square foot footprint satellite, um, or maybe even less, I don't know. I don't have a good metric for what the, if you're building a a satellite that's the size of four refrigerators, for example, but like big industrial refrigerators, I imagine that you need a very different type of manufacturing than you do if you're making a high volume of kind of smaller, even if they're still boutique uh, satellites.
1: Yeah, it all depends. Many uh, good examples, Max, as you know, of uh, large satellite manufacturers uh, building satellites like GPS in high quantity. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's also, uh, you know, small satellite manufacturers that are building uh, hundreds and thousands of small satellites. And everybody does it slightly differently. Um, I think the way we do it, it all starts with we went vertically integrated. And when we have uh, when we're building about 85% of the components that go into our small satellites, uh, we're able to stand up a feeder line, a feeder line of each of those 22 diverse products. Mm-hmm. And uh I think that's what's unique about what we're doing. Uh, we are able to scale up the feeder lines of each of those building blocks, those Lego mm-hmm. building blocks mm-hmm. in high quantity, which makes them readily available for our. VO satellites or MEO satellites or geo satellites and beyond because we have a lot of commonality in uh, satellite architectures and designs Mm -hmm. and they all share the same building blocks just in different combinations Um, you know very similar to a you know a truck manufacturing line Mm -hmm. if you look at some of the uh, truck manufacturing lines there's millions of combinations of a truck that can be built from the same line. And, uh, what enables that is the commonality in the, the design as well as the, the building block parts. So that's the model we've um, also used. Uh, so it really, it, it, it starts with the vertical integration and uh, our, our in-house products. Um, secondly, I think uh, we're learning a lot from our parent company, the Boeing company. Uh, they have over a hundred years of innovation and uh, some of the things that we're learning from uh, Boeing uh, are things like additive manufacturing. Um, they, they uh, do that for multi domains and we're able to leverage that uh, t- technology as well as the tools and the design work and the expertise to, we actually printed a 3d metal uh, Spacecraft last year and qualified it and we're going to launch that. Uh, so that's one example. Another example is um, digital transformation. Uh, the Boeing company uh, is a leader in that area and we've been able to leverage tools and uh, lessons learned and best practices and apply them to our uh, small satellite manufacturing in a very tailored manner. Um, and so there's a lot of good examples of digital engineering and Uh, transformation that we're applying to how we do manufacturing Uh, to go back to what you said earlier, uh, digitally defined assembly line. Um, And then, um, you know, there's uh, a lot of uh, just talent in terms of how do you, uh, you know, do things more lean, how do you do things more efficiently and simply to produce our systems? Um, we're learning a lot about design for manufacturability and test. That's something that uh, uh, we've had several uh, um, workshops with Boeing to learn how to do that best. And uh, we take that and we apply it to our small satellites. And so it does. it's not just about the manufacturing systems and going digital and the components that we have. It's also on the engineering design side. How do we design systems from the get-go to be manufacturable on the other end? Mm-hmm. And so I, I have great uh, uh, manufacturing and engineer, engineering leaders that are uh, problem sol- solving that problem every day jointly and getting everybody on our workforce uh, behind that. And so it's, uh, it's really exciting to see.
0: So that that's a great lead into. I appreciate you bringing up the Boeing partnership and the benefits you've derived there, and how closely linked it is to the digital transformation initiatives. Um, and if we have time, I'd love to come back to that. But it leads into another burning question I've had about treating kind of the factory as the product as well. For Elon, talk about this, and we had a we had a nice conversation about it too. But it's you know in one of our businesses, we we spent decades and we we're we're in a way paying, paying some of the Piper for it. Now we spent decades or our team spent decades focusing on product design, but not at all focusing on improvements in the manufacturing process and kind of treating the manufacturing process as a product that needs to be continuously improved. And so it's, it's very prescient on my mind. So, so as you apply what what I'm understanding to be this factory as the product model to making satellites, what are some of the, the key lessons you've learned around treating the assembly line, the manufacturing system um, and digital transformation as this ongoing amorphous project that you need to can constantly focus on?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, we talked about this before, Max, um, wouldn't it be nice if there's more manufacturing in the US? Uh, And uh, I think uh, there are a lot of great examples of manufacturing in the U.S. Uh, Millennium Space Systems is one of those great examples. Um, So I'm very proud of uh, the fact that we have great manufacturing capabilities and jobs um, at Millennium. Uh, We continue to to hire up. There's uh, significant growth in the small satellite market. Uh, There's a lot of growth in the national security space uh, market as well. And we're also diversifying and growing into commercial work and uh, someday uh, uh, more on a global scale. So there's a lot of tremendous growth. There's a lot of jobs. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, gaps in the whole uh, you know, system that we want to fill with very capable talent and uh, give people opportunities. The thing about Millennium Space Systems is we build our systems in one to two years on average and that way you know people that come here they get to see the fruits of their labor really really quickly and then move on to the next challenge and keep growing and so that's something that uh i think uh attracts a lot of our folks and uh hopefully there'll be people on in your audience that will be interested in coming over to work on us manufacturing uh, so that's one thing um you know i think that uh it's it's really exciting um I think we're going through a time period where uh, it's um, we're seeing a lot of Web 3.0. We're seeing a lot of uh, software development that uh, is yielding a lot of great capabilities, apps, whatnot. But going forward, like you mentioned, uh, you know, others doing uh, you know um, more modern manufacturing. I think industrialization and manufacturing will be the next uh, great technology revolution in the U.S. And you are going to see it at the global stage as well. So uh, we we are uh, very uh, grateful to be part of that. Uh, And we're taking advantage of everything we can in terms of the best practices, the best tools, technologies, um, even from other industries. It doesn't have to be just from the aerospace and defense industry. We look at other industries for, um, you know, uh, dual use commercial technologies, and we have the smarts to space qualify those technologies to withstand the harsh radiation environments in space. Um, but we could take stuff from the Silicon Valley, the other industries like the automobile industry where uh, piece parts are, uh, Uh, more reliable and and higher quality because of just the sheer numbers that uh, are being um, delivered. And uh, even the software world, we're able to take uh, the best practices from the commercial software industry and same operating systems and tools, which allows us to recruit from those other industries to have people work on not only what they are passionate about working on, but doing it for something very meaningful which is national security and doing it in a very very cool and vibrant industry space.
0: Yeah, I was listening to a Palmer Lucky podcast with the all in guys this morning. I'll, I'll send it over to you. I think you'll appreciate it. Um but he he was talking about how for a very long time the defense industry didn't have access to top to top technical talent like silicon valley did. And then he also made a note about how about how um kind of the silicon valley engineering workforce didn't understand a world with great power competition and how thanks to companies like anduril like palantir like millennium Space systems creating that kind of invigorating sexy digital transformation first work environment that's that's shifting and the tides are changing there quite a bit uh so it it's it's interesting to have this conversation following uh following that podcast
1: well that's that's uh that's a good uh conversation topic i think uh it's a misconception that uh innovation and creativity and uh top talent only come from the commercial world yeah um those that know uh in the aerospace and defense world uh the nation and the nation's industrial uh base have done some amazing things uh and taken things that are normally sci-fi and turned it into reality so uh obviously you know with my background i've been exposed to a lot and there's just a lot of great uh, innovation that's hap- happening on both sides—the traditional aerospace and defense world, as well as the commercial world. So i i would I would not discount what uh, both worlds have to bring to bear.
0: Yeah, and the convergence that's happening, particularly right now, it's absolutely beautiful. So thank you for leading there. Um, one question that I I have to sneak in, and then getting into to to the workforce conversation to to wrap to wrap up today. How has the aerospace and defense industry um, been impacted by some of the supply chain pressures that are that are unfolding right now? Are you guys super tight? I know that on the labor market side, you said that you that you're squared away and you're constantly that you're hiring a lot right now. Um, but on the supply chain side, what? Is, how, have, how has that impacted your ability to operate?
1: Yeah, it's impacting the whole world. Uh, when you you know see. Uh, And let's just look at the uh, electric vehicle industry. Uh, You know, you can see the uh, very public uh, impacts that the global supply chain has had on that industry. Um, So every industry is getting uh, uh, impacted. Um, You know, one of the things that I'll go back to is uh, Millennium's vertical integration. Because of the vertical integration, that's one step uh, to mitigate the challenges. Um, not having to rely on uh, you know a third party for everything. I think that certainly uh, helps to mitigate the challenges. Um, we have very bright people at this company that are uh, very experienced on uh, coming up with workarounds, um, working with the engineering teams uh, on the design so that if there is a particular piece part that was unpredictably uh, you know being uh, impacted by supply chain, issues. Uh, there are workarounds for that. And, and our team uh, does that on a on a daily basis. So I'm very uh, grateful for our um, manufacturing and supply chain and logistics team here. Uh, we have some great individuals, uh, great processes. Uh, we're putting in all the tools to make that even smoother. So we're not just going to um, sit back and react. We're going to be proactive and put in the systems to get even more efficient and have even more agility
0: to work around solutions. They're not only treating your factory as a product, but your supply chain is also a product that requires tender love and care from from a talented team. Um, Fantastic line of conversation. The the talented team piece. Now moving on to workforce, we need more manufacturing workforce in the United States and you guys are doing a great job of cultivating an engaged and, and innovative workforce. Um what is the next generation workforce that will support high-tech manufacturing companies like Millennium? What does that look like when when we when we break it down to an individual level? I think it's a diverse team.
1: Uh, you know, when you have diversity of thought, uh, different backgrounds, different cultures, uh, different ways of thinking, uh, you're able to solve any problem. And uh, I'm seeing that in Millennium Space Systems. We have a very diverse team here. Um, And I I think, you know, for some of these jobs, these very, very uh, noble jobs, uh, you don't, the misconception is you have to have a uh, a college degree for some of these jobs. There's a lot of jobs in our skilled workforce where you don't have to have a college degree. You just have to have the uh, motivation, uh, the aptitude, uh and uh the willingness to learn and uh, work hard. And there are there are a lot of jobs where we're seeking those uh type of uh talented people. Um if you do decide to go to college or, or grad school, there's plenty of jobs for that too. And so you know a company like Millennium Space Systems, we have multi-disciplines, uh, multi-roles, uh, we have non-engineering jobs. Uh everybody is needed to contribute to building and designing and testing and launching and operating these spacecraft. Uh, so I encourage, uh, you know, people from all types of backgrounds to look into our careers website and see if there's something that interests uh, you. Um, Max, I could use your help to get the word out because uh, we can't tell enough K through 12, uh, you know, STEM um, you know, students, we can't tell enough, uh, you know, skilled workforce or uh, folks getting their degrees uh, enough about the opportunities that you get at Millennium Space Systems and the uh, ability to see your stuff, um, you know, within a very short time frame
0: on orbit doing meaningful things for our customers. Very cool. Um, I'll, I'll, and I mean, that, that is a great call to action to end on. I'll ask, I'll ask, is Millennium Space Systems actively hiring right now? And if anyone's interested, where can they go to, uh, to, to engage with you all?
1: The answer is yes, yes, yes. Uh, and you can just go to our website. It's www.millennium-space.com. And there's a careers uh, a webpage that uh, has all of our requisitions. Uh, And, uh, you know, we're looking for exceptional, talented individuals
0: that uh, are good at what they do. Wonderful. I have many more questions. I know that you have to pop off. Jason Kim, thank you very much for coming on to the next Frontier podcast. Uh, Audience, I will put a bunch of links to other podcasts we've done around topics like digital transformation, a little bit more about the U.S. Air Force and the innovative work that happens there. Uh, Space, we did an episode on space that I think will complement as well. But Jason, thank you so much for the conversation. So that's Millennium Space Systems. And can people engage with you personally? Are you on Twitter? Are you on any social media? Where can people keep up with your work in and out of Millennium Space Systems?
1: I'm working on it. Right now, you can contact me on LinkedIn. Uh, But Millennium does have an Instagram webpage. Uh, So follow us on LinkedIn as well as uh, Instagram. And uh, look forward to having some great conversations.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. If you would like to follow along, learn more, dive deeper into our content, we are now live on Substack.com. You can head on over to maxgoldberg.substack.com. That's M-A-X-G-O-L-D-B-E-R-G.substack.com where we're publishing all of our podcasts from now on, all of our blogs, some long-form essays, and some other fun goodies along the way. The podcast is still going to live on anchor.fm forward slash next frontier, alternatively at nextfrontierpodcast.com, where we'll use it to distribute our free content to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. for now and to eternity, as long as Spotify and Anchor continue to host us. Anyway, housekeeping updates complete. The conclusion of that is head on over to maxgoldberg.substack.com to subscribe and follow along for our content.